Good evening, men. Welcome. Welcome to all of you who are here tonight and all of you who are following us and here on the internet. Uh, just so thankful for God to allow us to meet like this. Um, I have a couple of announcements. First, I don't know how many of you guys have been involved in Compass Active. I know I've done a couple of the runs here on Saturday morning. I know a lot of the runs and hikes and walks are being rescheduled for Thursdays, but if you go on the website, there's a ton of activities that are going on through Compass Active that go beyond running, walking. Um, we're doing golf. I don't know if that's included in that schedule, but there's also soccer and just a lot of different activities to keep us healthy uh, during this period where so many of us are closed up indoors. So take a look at that, look at the website. It's, it's a great way to connect and spread the word. I see a Compass Active t-shirt out in the audience. So um, take a look and get active. Also, we, there is a continual need for the tech volunteers. So um, check in online or in the back. Um, your services are needed. And with that, I'm going to pray for tonight's message. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we're just so thankful to be able to gather together. We're thankful that you protect us. Um, we're just most thankful for your word, protecting our hearts through your word. And um, so, Lord, we just ask that tonight be a night where your word reaches deep into our hearts. I'm so thankful for Pastor PJ, for his... Uh, message that he continues to give us the word of God and feeding us each and every week one way or another Lord uh, so thankful that the church has uh, new opportunities to preach a message in the great outdoors Lord and uh, we just are thankful that you continue with your covering of us throughout all of this time um, that this crisis is upon us I know as believers um, you know, people in our society fear for their health, and we fear for their souls. So, Lord, just uh, continue to reach out. Use this crisis as something that um, brings more and more into your kingdom. Help us get them on the bus. And so, um, as for tonight, Lord, we're just uh, thankful. Lift Pastor PJ up. Lift up the men who are receiving this message. May it have an impact in their spiritual walk. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Man, what's the, the food that if maybe you've got a wife who cooks it for you, or maybe it was growing up, your mom cooked it for you, maybe you cook it for yourself. What is that food that you could eat every single night for the rest of your life and never get tired of it? For me, it's tortellini. In fact, I, my birthday was just a, a couple weeks ago, and my wife said, what do you want for dinner? That's an easy one, tortellini, right? I could just, I could eat that. I probably shouldn't because it's not the healthiest meal, but cheese stuffed tortellini, just give that to me in buckets and I'm good to go. Or, or maybe there's a dessert that you like, and that dessert is one that even when you're full, you're like, I, I, I could eat more of this. And when it ends and when you, you get to the bottom of the bowl, it just, it's, it's crushing to you because there's none left. For me, that is Tillamook chocolate peanut butter ice cream. 
And it's got to be Tillamook. It can't be some knockoff brand that you try to slip in there and say, hey, look, chocolate peanut butter ice cream. No, it's Tillamook. And I'll tell you why. Because it's got the ribbon, and that's what they call it. It's a ribbon of peanut butter that's woven throughout the entire gallon of ice cream. And you just, you get chunks of peanut butter along with the chocolate. And I had some last night, and I was there, man. I was eating this ice cream. And after the, the bowl was empty, I felt disappointed. I was I could have gone to the freezer, pulled out the gallon, and, and scooped out some more, but my dignity kicked in, and I just didn't do that. I mean, I've been known to just eat it straight out of the gallon, the whole thing by myself, but we had somebody over last night, and I just couldn't bring myself to, to stoop that low. But I wanted to. Why? Because I, it doesn't matter how much I get, I always want more. Well, that's what Jesus wants us to think about with this beatitude that we're looking at tonight. He wants us to think about righteousness that way that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness in such a way that no matter how much we feel like we are growing in righteousness, that we are never, ever satisfied, that we always want more, that we're always saying with the Apostle Paul, you know what, well done, this is great, but hey, let's excel still more. Let's go further, go harder, pursue more passionately righteousness as followers of God. Our beatitude together tonight is Matthew 5, 6. Matthew 5, 6, which says this. It says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It's a familiar one. It's one of the more familiar of the Beatitudes, ones that we've heard uh, time and time again and been exhorted. You know what? We need to be pursuing righteousness. We should be hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And here we have this Beatitude in Matthew 5, 6. But what it does, at least in my mind initially, is it reminds me of just how unrighteous our world actually is. It reminds me of Genesis 3. It reminds me of the fall. It reminds me that ever since Adam and Eve together sinned against the Lord, what has happened from that time forward is that unrighteousness has multiplied in our world at an alarming rate, such that we no longer have to, uh, or we never actually had to, but certainly now we don't have to even teach our children how to be unrighteous. I look at my own kids and I'm amazed at times at just how naturally inclined to selfishness they are. And I don't think that my kids are any different than any of your kids or any of your grandkids out there. I think this is a universal, in fact, I know it's a universal problem that all of us have. And all of us were there at one time. Nobody had to teach us to be selfish. Nobody had to teach us to fight. Nobody had to teach us to want to not share with someone. In fact, nobody had to teach us as we grew older to uh, to lust. Nobody had to teach us as we grew older to covet. Nobody had to teach us as we grew older to, uh, to, to curse at somebody when they crossed us. Nobody had to teach us when we got older to become angry when somebody cut us off on the road. It comes naturally, and the reason why it comes naturally is because of the unrighteousness that is all around the world that we live in. It's the fall of mankind we find ourselves in the midst of a pandemic with a virus that's spreading with such speed and depth that they've literally shut countries down, as we all know all too well. But honestly, I'll tell you what, compared to the spread of sin, COVID-19 has nothing on the spread of sin. Sin has spread far wider and far deeper and far faster and far more disastrously than any virus ever has or ever will. 
In fact, the Apostle Paul talks about the spread of sin in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. Paul says in Romans 5, 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So here's Paul's argument here. He's laying out and he's setting up and he's teeing up for us a doctrine which we have come to, to, to call total depravity. And, and what he's arguing here is he's saying, in Adam, everyone... All of humanity, save Jesus Christ, everyone sinned when Adam sinned. And he proves his point by saying, you know, the, the wages of sin is, what do we know the wages of sin to be? Death. And he says, and, and death reigned from Adam to Moses. And he says this, even though there was no what? Law. When did the law come? With Moses, right? So it's not that all of a sudden that the law was given and people were transgressing the specific law of God that made us guilty before the Lord. No, people were guilty before God because of the sin of Adam here. So Paul is arguing for total depravity. That is that he is arguing that we are born in need of salvation. We are born guilty in Adam. Adam was our federal representative as Christ would eventually become our federal representative at the cross. And we were represented in the act of Adam in his rebellion against God. And so therefore we participated in that and we all incurred the guilt of Adam. And so we are guilty, yes, because we sin, but we are ultimately guilty because we possess a sin nature as human beings. It's this concept, this doctrine called total depravity. It means this, that the Adam's sin and guilt has been, the, the word in, in theological circles is called imputed. It's been put in our account, charged our account to all of mankind, again, accepting Jesus. And this depravity has in, impacted us in our, our minds, in the way that we think, in our desires, and the things that we want, and the, the, the things that we will for ourselves. It's affected our uh, affections, the things that we love, the things that we are, are passionate about. And it's also impacted our bodies, which is why we have to have ministries like Compass Active, right? Because if we don't, our bodies continue to break down. And if we eat giant gallon tubs of Tillamook chocolate peanut butter ice cream, things don't go well. Why? Because of Adam. It's Adam's fault that you have to get on the treadmill. You can blame him when you get to heaven. But total depravity, right? And it's, it's the, the, the greatest impact of it has been on our relationship with God. And that is we're born severed from the Lord. We have no relationship from, with God. And not only that, but, but total depravity has made it so that we can't do anything to overcome that void between us and God. And Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 14, Paul says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, in order that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now here's what I'm driving at with this. The natural person, says Paul, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
so there we have Paul referring to our total depravity as our, as our state of being natural men, that the natural man cannot understand the things of God. And so why belabor this so much and talk about total depravity when we're talking about hungering and thirsting for righteousness? And that is because of this, it's, it's only as we understand the depth of the depravity around us that we will have a, a greater desire for the fullness of the righteousness that Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 5, 6. And we live in a world where we can grow numb to the depravity around us. We live in a world that is so far away from the Lord and has drifted so far gone that we're not even shocked when we read the headlines anymore. Even just this week when the Supreme Court sided against the, voted against the Louisiana restrictive abortion bill, right? It, it, it made me sad, but it didn't outrage me because I wasn't surprised at this. This is the world in which we find ourselves. This is the world in which we live in. And yet at the same time, man, we should constantly be aware of the depth of that depravity. We need to look the depravity of the world that we live in in the face, and we need to have those moments of shock. We need to be reminded of the purity of God, of the righteousness of God, of the holiness of God, and and to see the filth of the world in which we live up against that brilliantly glorious background. Point number one tonight is this. Recognize that depth of our world's depravity. Recognize the depth of our world's depravity. The reason that we need to hunger and thirst for righteousness is because it does not come naturally. It is not found easily in this world because the world that we live in is a world of unrighteousness. Take the streaming platform Netflix. In 2018, so two years ago, a study was done that found 61% of the shows on Netflix carry a TVMA rating. 61%. Over half of the library of Netflix shows, which is thousands upon thousands upon thousands of shows, 61% of those carry a TVMA rating, mature audiences. Here's how you get that rating from Netflix themselves. A TVMA rating denotes that a particular TV show contains graphic violence, foul language, graphic sex scenes, or a combination thereof. That's what gives a TVMA rating. Well, 2020, how are we doing for ourselves? Well, let's check in again with Netflix. In 2020, there are 255 shows on Netflix currently categorized as teenage shows. Shows meant for teenagers. Of those 255 shows on Netflix that are categorized as teenage shows, 104 of those have a TVMA rating. TVMA rating, 104 out of 255. That's about 40% of the shows that Netflix says are for our teenagers are shows that contain graphic violence, foul language, graphic sex scenes, or some combination thereof. There have been articles written about this, and they say, you know why? Netflix has so many shows that have a TVMA rating because that's what people want to watch. Because that's what excels. That's what succeeds. That's what gets the viewership and the ratings. Why? Because we live in a world of unrighteousness. Let's talk about pornography. From 1998 to 2007, the number of pornographic websites increased by 1,800%. 
That's a a 10-year period. And the number of porn sites went up by 1,800%. By 2004, I I found this statistic today. By the way, this is taken from the website, The New Drug, Fight the New Drug, uh, which is all about battling pornography. It's a a good resource, gets into some of the the physiology behind it and what's going on in in the brain and even talks about damage to marriages and other things as well. Good resource there. Again, Fight the New Drug. But this statistic came from this, and this blew me away. By 2004, porn websites were drawing three times more visitors than Google, Yahoo, and MSN search combined. Three times more visits to porn sites than to Google, Yahoo, and MSN search combined. Why? Because we live in a world of unrighteousness. At that same time, 30%, 30% of all internet data was porn-related. That's staggering. And this is all prior to smartphones being in our back pockets with internet access and social media. So you think those numbers haven't skyrocketed since then? How about the current status of marriage in our country? June is known now as what? Pride Month, right? So you have, everywhere you look, rainbow logos, right? Amazon wants you to know that they support Pride Month. Google wants you to know that they support Pride Month. Apple wants you to know that they support Pride Month. Spotify, a music player, wants you to know, hey, we support Pride Month. Peloton, right? I ride the, the, the bike, right? They've got Pride rides and Pride weightlifting workouts that you can do. I'm like, what? Why can't we just ride a bike? Why does this have to be for this or for that? The NHL, the NFL, the, the Major League Baseball, they, they've all come out in support of, of Pride Month. Again, why? Because we live in a world of unrighteousness and the depth of depravity that's out there. And this depth of depravity, man, it should do two things to us. Number one, it should cause us to mourn. And we've talked about this already. Jesus has already addressed this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, when he said, blessed are those who what? Mourn. Well, this is some of the things that that should cause us as Christian men to mourn, to lament, to feel heartbroken over the state of things in our world. So we should mourn over it. But the second thing that it should do in us is it should create in us what Jesus is talking about in our beatitude tonight, and that is this hunger and thirst for righteousness. It should cause us to look at this world and to, to say, even as we heard this past weekend from Pastor Mike, that this world is not our home and that we're made from a different world and for a different world. And it should create in us a, a longing for more things like that, for more of God and less of this place. It's like the, the weary and parched desert traveler, if you've can think back to the, the scenes from the TV shows or the movies or the cartoons where they're crawling through the desert and they come up over the sand dune and they look down at the, the sand dune and they see this, this o- oasis, at least that's what they think it is, and they see the water and everything else and they, they run down and they dive into the, the, what they think is going to be a, a wading pool of water only to find that it's what? A mirage, right? And then they're left even more broken than they were on the other side of that dune. Why? Because they're even more keenly aware of their lack when they thought they had what they wanted and now they realize that they're just as thirsty, just as barren, just as hopeless as they ever were. It makes them want water even more. Or my wife and I have, have watched 
seasons of Survivor, and they always have a reward challenge in Survivor. And at, at some point in time, it's, it's food. And these two tribes are competing, and they're going through this contest, and both of them at the start of the contest are so excited because the thought of eating food when all they've been eating is rice or all they've been eating is corn maize or whatever for you know, 30 days, and here's this food, and they, they go and only one tribe wins. Well, what does that do to everybody else? It reminds them of what they don't have, and it makes them even more desirous for what they don't have. Well, man, this, this unrighteous world should make us that much more desirous for what we don't have right now, and that is the fullness of the righteousness of God. And that's what Jesus wants us to hunger and thirst for. And so, man, what are your responses to the, uh, the, the fallenness in this world? When you see things like this abortion law being overturned in Louisiana, or when you see the, the celebration of the destruction of marriage, what, what is your response to it? Is it anger? Or perhaps anxiety? Frustration? Sorrow? Those are all fine responses in their own regard, but I, I wonder, does it cause you to desire more of Christ's righteousness than you have right now? Does it cause you to long more for righteousness? Because that's what Jesus wants us to do. When, when we encounter the depravity of the world that we're in, like a, a weary desert traveler, we should be that much more desirous for the righteousness of God to say, Jesus, come quickly because we want to be with you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I love the words that Jesus chooses here. Don't you? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I mean, he could have chosen something else. He could have said, blessed are those who want righteousness. Blessed are those who desire righteousness. Blessed are those who pursue righteousness. Blessed are those who search for righteousness. Blessed are those who seek out righteousness. Blessed are those who post on Facebook about how much they like righteousness. I mean, Jesus could have chosen a lot of different things, but he uses these two graphic and tangible words, hunger and thirst. All of us know what it is to experience those things in increased capacities, don't we? We know what it is to be so hungry, even to the point that we would say to ourselves, man, I am what? Starving. And we use that metaphorically, and we remind our son, of Joshua, of that all the time. Because, oh, mommy, I'm starving. No, you're not starving, Joshua. Actually, you're okay. You had three meals today. You're going to be fine. But we know what that is, to, to just crave food, for our bodies even, to feel weak, right? If, if you've ever just felt that feeling where your body just feels like jello sometimes, and you're like, I, I, I need to get food in me. I need to get some, some sustenance. And you, you look forward to eating. You, you know what it is to hunger. But I think it's even worse to, to be thirsty and to not have water nearby, right? To know, man, I am so thirsty and I don't know where I'm going to get another drink. I just crave water. And there's those times where just water can be the best tasting thing in the entire world, right? Even though it's probably the most bland tasting thing in the entire world. But it, we desire it so much that when we finally get it, it's the most satisfying thing to us. And Jesus sees on these two things that, you know what I love is, is his disciples and the original audience listening to this, they would have heard those two words the same way that you and I hear those two words together tonight. And their, their images in their minds would have been the same as our images in our minds. Thinking to ourselves, man, yeah, I know what it is to hunger after something and to thirst after something. 
to have a passion, a longing, a need, a desperation for it. And Jesus says that needs to be righteousness. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, in the Greek, if I can get into the Greek with us for just a second, because it's, it's important for our understanding of this. We would expect that word righteousness to take on a certain form. Kind of like this. If I told you, I'm hungry for food. Now, what would you assume there? You would assume, okay, he's hungry for food, and you might ask a follow-up question, and you would ask the follow-up question, what? What kind of food do you want, right? Because immediately, you would assume that I wasn't implying that I'm hungry for all of the food everywhere in the entire world right now. I want it all right now. Give me all of the food now with the chocolate peanut butter ice cream on top. You would understand that I was saying, no, I'm, I'm hungry for some food. Even if I told you, man, I'm so starving, let's go eat food, you would say, okay, but where? What kind of food do you want to eat? In the Greek, they had a way to do that in the, the form of that word. And that's what we expect here Jesus to be saying. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for some righteousness. But that's not what Jesus says. The form that the word takes in the Greek is actually in the accusative, which means that Jesus is saying, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for not some righteousness, but all righteousness. And so Jesus is saying, no, I mean everything. That your desire, your passion, your longing, that hunger, that thirst, that craving that you have, it doesn't need to be just for a sliver of righteousness, or just for an extra measure of righteousness. But no, you need to hunger, and you need to thirst, and you need to want, and you need to desire, and you need to pursue the entirety of righteousness. All of it. It's just a tall order, isn't it? And it reminds us of where Jesus goes not too much further from here, and it probably would have still been echoing in the minds of his listeners in Matthew chapter 5.20. Where Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness, there's our word, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Which we've talked about that already. His listeners, audience would have heard that and their mouths would have dropped open because they would have thought to themselves, Jesus, that's what? That's impossible. From an earthly standard, from a human standard, the Pharisees were the righteous of the righteous. They, they were. They were experts at keeping the law. They were truly clean on the outside of the cup. Their problem wasn't external obedience to the law. Their problem was an eternal, internal void of a relationship with God, right? So these men were the righteous of the righteous. So when Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, he's saying, you, you need a, a, an uber righteousness. You need a super righteousness. You need, we could maybe say this phrase, an alien righteousness. And here he's saying, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for that same righteousness. That righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. That righteousness that is beyond your capability. That righteousness that you cannot provide for yourself. That righteousness that you cannot work up, that you cannot white knuckle yourself into enough obedience, enough faithfulness to God, enough prayer, enough time in the word, enough sermons listened to, enough podcasts listened to. You can't. Do it. This is so much of Jesus' point in the Beatitudes. And this is where Luther's perspective of the Beatitudes comes in here, where he says this is the, the uber law. 
You've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, but I tell you. And there Jesus again is ratcheting up the, the standard, saying, look, you think you're doing fine, but I'm about to tell you you're not really ultimately fine because you've got an internal problem. And that's where our problem really is. We are unrighteous internally, not just externally. And so Jesus is saying, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for a righteousness that you can't have. Which is consternating, to say the least, isn't it? But when we think of this righteousness, the fullness of the righteousness of God, the completeness of the righteousness of God, it calls to mind another verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, where we see this phrase, the righteousness of God. What righteousness of God? Some righteousness of God? No, this is all the righteousness of God. And here's what we read. For our sake, God the Father made God the Son to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So blessed are you who hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God is really Jesus saying, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for me. You see that? If you want the full righteousness of God, if I'm saying, okay, God, I want the fullness of your righteousness, I want the entirety of your righteousness, really what we are saying in essence is, God, I want you. I want you, God. And I need to hunger and thirst for you on this earth. I need to, to do everything I can to pursue you in this earth. I need to focus on you and be passionate and be longing for you, God. You know, the, the depravity of this world shouldn't lead us to want a better world. It should lead us to want a new world, which God's promised to us, right? The new heavens and the new earth. The depravity of this world shouldn't cause us to want us to, to flee back to Eden, but to go to the new Jerusalem so that we can be in the presence of God the Father and seeing our Savior face to face. That's what the depravity of this world should do for us. It should cultivate us in us this, this desire to be with Jesus because it should also lead us to think, you know what, Jesus, you are so much better than anything that this world offers me. As we think about hungering and thirsting for righteousness the way that Jesus wants us to, that's so much of the, the, the key to this is being convinced of the superiority of Christ, that he is so much better than anything this world offers us. In fact, that's point number two. Believe that Jesus is better than anything else. Believe that Jesus is better than anything else. If he is the righteousness of God personified, he is God in the flesh, he is God incarnate, he is the one that we will behold face to face when we are in eternity. He is our Lord and our Savior then if we are going to hunger and thirst for righteousness, hunger and thirst for him, the, the mindset that we men need to embrace is that he is better than anything else that this world offers us. You know, come Thanksgiving time, there's really three things that I care for. Four if you count Dallas Cowboys football, but I'm talking about my plate and I'm talking about things that usually make me happy. So three things, turkey, stuffing, and cranberry sauce. And there's a, a division in the camp on cranberry sauce. There are those of you who like the, the ones that are from actual real cranberries and made in the, in the pot. I'm not that guy. Give me the lines, give me the ridges, give me the can, and it needs to sloop out of the can and fall on the plate. That's the cranberry sauce that I'm talking about. I want that. 
right? I want turkey, I want stuffing, and I want the cranberry sauce with ridges on it. The only time I've had conflict with my mother-in-law is when she didn't get the cranberry sauce with ridges on it, and we're good now, but that was it. But there have been times in my marriage that come Thanksgiving, we've gone over to, you know, an extended family member's home, and they don't do things right. I mean, they do things differently there. And when it comes time to get food, we grab our plates and we go through the line and I'm kind of looking at what they've got and they've got all this stuff laid out. I'm thinking to myself, okay, I need to be polite. So I'm putting things on my plate and all the while I've got my eye on the the turkey and the stuffing and the cranberry sauce going, why am I putting stuff on the plate that's taking up valuable real estate for the only things that really are good in this lineup, right? Turkey, stuffing, cranberry sauce. Because in the end, I'm, I'm going to take a couple bites and then I'm going to shovel it into the trash can and go back for more turkey, cranberry sauce, and stuffing. Well, men, this world has plenty of things that they're willing to fill your plate with that aren't Jesus. And just like the turkey, the cranberry sauce, and the stuffing is far better than anything else that they have in those Thanksgiving buffets, Jesus is far better, far better than all the things that this world wants you to put on your plate that promise satisfaction that can't back it up. So as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we need to make sure that we're hungering and thirsting for Jesus and for satisfaction in Jesus above and beyond anything else. You know, God doesn't find our desires for righteousness too strong, but too weak. It's not that God's sitting there going, enough, whoa, 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 you're exhausting me. I've revealed too much of myself for you. Let me scrape the barrel and see what I've got left. No, it's that he's looking at us going, you haven't sought me enough. I have so much more that I'm willing to offer you. It's not that we want too much of Jesus, but too little of him. In fact, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. I've alluded to this quote the past couple weeks. I've felt like finally, let me just read it. Lewis said this, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promise of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are, says Lewis, half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when the infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Man, that hits me between the eyes every time I read that. Jesus, I need to want more of you. To be less infatuated with this world and want more of Jesus. He's the greatest of those rewards that Lewis was talking about. It's Jesus. And again, if we believe that anything is better than Jesus, the God of this world is like the the relative at that Thanksgiving buffet. The God of this world is ready to give you whatever you want that you are going to say, this is better than Jesus. There are plenty of vices. There are plenty of places that the world will throw out there and put at your fingertips, literally at your fingertips, and tell you, look, you want to be satisfied in these areas? I'm not going to charge you anything for it. I'm going to make it free for you. As long as I can keep you focused on this stuff and not Jesus. You know, in Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, when the writer says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here's the phrase, looking to what? Jesus, 
the author and perfecter of our faith. That phrase, looking to Jesus, the, the writer was using a word there that means to look away from something and to something else. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, let's get our eyes off the things that we want to be satisfied with here on earth and let's adjust our gaze to Christ. So whether that's fame or sex or drink or drugs or uh, you know, the, the ideal marriage. You want the Norman Rockwell, Rockwell painting for your family and that's become this place that you're looking for satisfaction but it's not satisfaction that's driven from Christ or you're looking to be you know, the, the best dad or the best grandpa because your dad failed you and you're thinking to yourself, well, that's where I'm gonna be satisfied but that's not rooted to a satisfaction ultimately in your identity in Christ or you're looking to, uh, to be able to retire early and to, to be able to give your wife everything that she ever wanted and yet that's not rooted in a, a desire to be satisfied first and foremost in your identity with Christ. See, the world is willing to offer you these things, men, because it's willing to distract you all the way to hell. And you'll miss Jesus in the, the midst of it all. Hungering and thirsting for Jesus. John 6.35, Jesus said this. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Or two chapters before this, you had Jesus at the woman and the, and the woman at the well in Samaria. Remember Jesus and his disciples, it says in the text, they had to pass through Samaria because God the Father had a divine appointment for Jesus the Son with this woman at the well, and we get to eavesdrop in John chapter 4. And it says that Jesus sat down by the well being wearied and there comes this Samaritan woman from the village and Jesus speaks to her and says, hey, give me a drink. And she enters into a conversation with him and Jesus says this in John 4, 13 through 14. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, meaning the water in the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We'll never thirst again. We'll never hunger again. Well, is that just all eschatological? Well, ultimately, yes. It's all about the fact that we're going to be in the new heavens and new earth, free from the presence of sin and all of its impact and effects. But there's a sense in which we can begin to enjoy that now, this satisfaction in Jesus that allows us to look the, the, the offers of the world in the face that are promising satisfaction in all these places and saying, yes, but Jesus is better. A good litmus test, men, to, to say, well, how do I know if, if I'm believing that Jesus is better than anything else? Is those things that you find to be important in your life, ask yourself, if that's gone, is Jesus enough? Are you going to get out of bed tomorrow if your 401k collapses? Are you going to get out of bed tomorrow if you lose your job? Are you going to get out of bed tomorrow if your wife and family walk out on you? Are you going to get out of bed tomorrow if you get the diagnosis that says you have a week to live? See, these are the areas that we begin to uncover in our lives where we have things that have supplanted where Jesus needs to be. Where We have said, okay, this is better than life itself. And the only thing we should say about that is Jesus. The only thing where we should say, look, if I don't have this, I don't have a will to live anymore, is Jesus. And this is hard because 
we're in love with the world around us. And so we see Jesus sitting there holding out the bread of life, but we see somebody behind him that's pointing the way to the Chinese buffet down the road going, well, that looks better. Or we see Jesus sitting there holding out the, the cup of water and we see the fully stocked bar behind him and we go, okay, yeah, but that looks better, Jesus. Everything else is a mirage, man, except for Christ. Every other thing that promises to satisfy you is a mirage except for Jesus. I wish that Solomon wrote in the New Testament when he wrote Ecclesiastes because I think he would have said that. Vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity, says the preacher. It's here, it's gone. And I love chapter two. If you've got a moment, you should read it maybe during even your small groups. But chapter two where Solomon says, look, I've done there, I've been that, I've been there, I've done that. And he lists so many things that are these counterfeit offers of satisfaction that the world holds out to us. And Solomon says, I've been there, I've done that, and it doesn't work. It doesn't satisfy. See, man, every battle with sin we have ultimately is a battle that comes down to whether or not we believe Jesus is better than that sin in that moment or not. And when we give in to sin, what we are saying is that sin is better than Jesus. And that, that satisfaction that the sin offers us is better than the satisfaction that we have in Christ. On the flip side of that, on the positive side, when we experience victory over sin, man, what we are saying there is, you know what? Jesus is better than that sin. That the promise of satisfaction that I have in my relationship with Jesus is better than what the enemy and what the world are offering in the lies and the deceitfulness of sin. This takes work. It takes effort. In a world that we live in, Jesus is an acquired taste, if I can say that. Are you working to acquire the taste of Christ in your life? It doesn't come naturally. The good news is that those who do work at this, who hunger and thirst, who pursue this righteousness, who pursue Jesus, though we can't have it in its fullness, which is why we will always be pursuing these things, the good news is, is the promise that Jesus gives here in this verse is he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be, what's the next word? Satisfied. They shall be satisfied. Again, living in this world is living with an awareness that this world can't satisfy us. And it's a daily battle that we have to come to terms with and come to grips with because, again, the enemy is not lazy. Satan is a lot of things, but lazy is not one of them. He is always there at the ready with his legion of demons, ready to come after us, ready to tempt you, ready to divert you if you will let your guard down. And so that's why this is a, a daily call for us to continue to hunger and thirst for Jesus, knowing that ultimately we will be satisfied. And that's why we can keep going, men. Because Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also, what's next? Glorified. I love that unbroken chain, and I love that glorified is in past tense because it's sure for us. It's as certain as our justification is. It's as certain as our calling and as our predestination is our future glorification. We will be satisfied in Jesus. So in the meantime, what do we need to do? What's our battle cry? Point number three tonight is this. Keep focusing your affections on Jesus. 
Keep focusing your affections on Jesus. Keep loving Jesus daily, 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 daily loving Jesus. Chasing fulfillment and satisfaction in the world, it's like the greyhound at the track that's chasing the bunny that's on that little robotic arm that goes around and around and around and around. Guess what the greyhound never gets? The bunny, right? It's always going to be running after that rabbit and never able to catch it. Or it's like the carrot at the end of the stick that keeps the horse walking forward, right? The, the, the horse is not going to be able to get the carrot. Why? Because it's, it's always going to be pursuing it, always going to be in front of it. The world wants us to think it's attainable to be satisfied here, but it never is. And every single day, we're going to be facing situations and circumstances and situations where we're going to be offered satisfaction here and now, right? It's like the, the Snickers commercials, right? Hungry, what, what's next? Why, why wait, right? That's Snickers tagline. That is not a biblical tagline, man. If we are hungry for Jesus, it's all about waiting. The, your flesh says hungry, why wait, right? And so we need to, to understand that what we have is so much better than what this world offers us. I mean, if, if you thought about, dude, at, at home, you, you had a, a, a porterhouse steak just waiting for you. And somebody on the way home offered you a Snickers bar. You'd look at them like, are you crazy right now? Do you know what I have waiting for me at home? No. Thank you, though. Man, we need to not accept the Snickers bars of the world when what we have is so much even better than a porterhouse steak. You know what we have waiting for us? We have the wedding supper of the lamb waiting for us where we are going to realize the full righteousness of Jesus, where we are going to dine with our Savior in his presence forever. What an amazing, amazing, amazing thing that will be. Paul talks about this future hope that we have that allows us to keep going and that allows us to say, yes, I'm going to keep my affections, my love on Jesus. He says this is in Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly, certainly be united with him in what? A resurrection like his. We will live with our Savior, yes? 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's the day that we look forward to. Yes, that we see Jesus and we become like Jesus. What a day that will be. And yes, Romans 8, 28 through 30, I alluded to it earlier. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul puts that chain right on the back end of he works all things together for good because ultimately our good is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, which won't happen until we are glorified. So Romans 8, 28 and 29 isn't about this life at all. I mean, it is in that we're in process in that. But the full realization of Romans 8, 28 and 29, we're not going to know the good that God is working until we see our Savior face to face. Then we will. And we live in a world of immediate gratification. And yet we're following a Savior who's called us to delayed gratification. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those words hunger and thirst, they're present active participles, which means who keep on hungering, who keep on thirsting. Jesus is saying it's, it's not as though you're going to be satisfied here. 
you shall be satisfied. It's not going to happen on this earth. You are going to be hungry for Jesus every day of your life. I pray to God you are hungry for Jesus every day of your life. And you are going to feel like, man, I wish I had more of Jesus every single day of your life. At least that's what God has called us to. Take this virus, for instance. Let's put some boots on the ground with this concept. Do you men want this virus to go away? Yes, I think all of us do, right? All of us want this virus to go away. None of us are sitting here going, man, I hope this ramps back up and everything shuts down again. I trust at least. And I want it to go away. It, 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 is, it is wearisome to open up the news sites day after day and see more headlines and everything else. And now Fauci is talking about some swine flu in China that we need to, to be concerned with now, right? I mean, this is just a beating and you sit there and you go, man, God, it would be so much better if we could go back to what we had before all of this. And yet I want to challenge you and I want to ask you this. Do you want Jesus more than you want COVID to end? I hope so. See, this is about focusing our affections on Jesus and not being distracted by the world. The, the devil wants us to sit here and go, man, I can't wait for COVID to be over. I can't wait for this. And this is dumb. And this is stupid. And this is ridiculous. And this is idiotic. And this is that. And that, right, right, right. See, Satan wants us there, right? Because we're not loving Jesus. God wants us to go, okay, God, here's my desire. My desire is that this virus would go away, but I love Jesus more than that. So I want your will to be done. Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done, right? Let's not get distracted, men. Let's keep our affections on Jesus. Paul did. I keep coming back to the same verses, men, and, and I, I don't even apologize to this because they're such good reminders for us. Paul says this, right? Philippians 1, 21 through 24, for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Can we say the same thing? With no caveats. Yes, Jesus, I want to depart to be with you, but please let my kids grow up first. Yes, Jesus, I want to depart and be with you, but please let me get retired first. Yes, Jesus, I want to grow up and be with you, but please, but please let this, there needs to be no exception clause to that. Jesus, I want to be with you. Period. End of story. Because I love you. You know, I've never known a Christian on his deathbed to regret not enjoying more of the earthly lures of his life. Not sitting there going, man, I wish I had drunk more. Oh man, I wish I had looked at more porn when I was younger. Oh, Dude, you know what? I wish I had divorced more women in my life. You never hear that. You hear a lot of regret, but a lot of it's the, the opposite. Man, I, I wish I had spent more time pursuing Jesus. I wish I had loved Jesus more than I did. I wish I had taken my walk with Jesus more seriously sooner than I did. Again, this is ongoing Blessed are those who keep on hungering, who keep on thirsting for Jesus, for they shall be satisfied. Don't be satisfied by the Snickers bars of the world when you have the marriage supper of the Lamb waiting for you. 
Jesus is the model of some of these beatitudes, but in this case, he's the fulfillment of it. Again, this is Jesus standing up and saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for me, who want more of me. And just again, like that ice cream that I love so much, when it's over, when it's empty, I, I just sit there and I go, can I, is it too, is Ralph still open? Can I make it? Can I go buy another tub? At least those thoughts run through my mind. God, man, it, it should be so much more of that for us with Jesus. Every single encounter we have with him, with his word, with his people, with praying. I don't know if you men were here on, on the weekend, but after every single one of those services that we had out here this weekend, I walked away going, man, I want more of that. God, I hope that you allow us to meet again next week here. That should be our, our reaction. Always hungering and thirsting for more of Jesus. Never satisfied until we're with him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would hasten that day, that you would hasten the day of Christ's return when we are with him as his church. Lord, in the meantime, may we be found faithful. May you cultivate a greater hunger for Christ in our hearts, in our lives, in our desires, in our mindsets, in our attitudes. God, may we not be satisfied with the trinkets that this world throws at us and offers to us and tells us, find satisfaction here, be satisfied with this, love this. Lord, may we see through the lies of the enemy and to see them as Solomon saw them, as vapor here and gone. And God, allow us to anchor our hopes and our true desire to be satisfied in Jesus and a longing for righteousness. When we look at this depraved world, Lord, may we want more of Jesus, to be like Jesus, to be around Jesus' people and his bride more than, than we are. And Lord, may you be pleased with us and gracious to us to allow us to experience though just in part right now, more and more and more of this righteousness until we are with you in, in the presence of the fullness of this righteousness someday. We pray that that day would come soon, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.